morning. Daniel Locke, our first speaker, is an artist and graphic novelist whose works often informed and shaped by the discoveries of contemporary science. He's the author of the graphic novel, Out of Nothing, and here to start our morning is Daniel Locke. No. Yes, now you can. Oh, brilliant. This is great, this thing. It's like, um, I felt, feel like uh, Lady Gaga or something like that. Um, and I've got a lectern and everything. This is literally not the setup for my usual talk. Do I just scroll on like that? Oh, it's just coming. Yeah. I've got huge imposter syndrome right now. Having a stage, this is the first time I've been on a stage since I was about 10 years old. It's, it's really, really bizarre. It's weird we make our children do all that, and then, you know, sort of step, most of the same ones of us step aside. Are my slides ready now? Oh, no. Still channeling. Oh, anyway, I'll introduce myself. Uh, my name's Dan Locke. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm a cartoonist, uh, but for this sort of highfalutin' setting, you can think of me as a graphic novelist. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that, that, that's the term that... Uh, that seems, but, but actually, what I do is draw silly pictures and uh, put stories to them. Um, uh, and I'm here to talk about the book that I'm, uh, I was involved with a few, uh, for the last year it came out, called Out of Nothing. And it was funded by an organization, amazing organization called Welcome Trust. But before I start talking about that, I want to show you... Um, oh, look, we've got the whole... This is the backstage area. <laughs> uh, um, we got, so before I do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about... Um, where it's come from. So it's not called out of nothing uh, for no reason, um, because basically my I feel like my entire career has sort of come out of nothing, or at least by accident. Um, so when I was, uh, you don't need that. When I, went, I went to university, I, when I was young, I thought to myself, I want to be an artist. And it was like, I, I could easily conceive what an artist would do and what it would be like to be an artist. Um, I would have a studio, I'd have artist friends, I'd drink a lot and have really cool conversations. And I went to art college and I found that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and it was amazing. But leaving art college, I got all the, all, got all the, the gear that goes with being an artist. But I also but I, I found out that I didn't really have anything to really say. You know, I was like 22 and... Um, sort of more interested, actually, in going to the pub and drinking and being with my friends and stuff. But still, this desire was there. I've got to be an artist. And then something happened that totally threw a spanner in the works and absolutely ensured that I'd never get that monograph that I coveted, full of, like, my gallery artwork. I was sent to Japan uh, on a research trip and in Japan, I discovered like, the world of what comics could be. I'd always been a comics reader, like when I was a little kid and into my teenage years, and I, I couldn't quite stop reading comics, but I never told anyone about it because it wasn't sort of respectable. And I, liked, I, I discovered a love of other things, like gallery artwork and things like that. But I was sent to Japan, and I saw comics situated in a large, interesting, diverse visual culture and I thought, wow, I, I'm going to be a cartoonist. And in a way that you can only do when you're in your early 20s, I came back from Japan and chucked everything I'd spent the past six years trying to do and decided to be a cartoonist. And actually ended up just going to the pub. 
But during the time, but, but dur during that period, I, I was being a cartoonist, and this is one of the first comics I made that I was sort of happy with. And it was the first piece that got, got published. It's part, this is one page of a, long, of a longer story, but it recounts the, and this is why I've included in this talk, I, it recounts the time, one of the times, where I saw a ghost. And that, that's important because I don't believe in ghosts. Like, I, I, I'm an empiricist during the day, this is. Um, <laughs> I'm an empiricist. I think that the world is, you know, uh, measurable and understandable, and I think that uh, I, I've got sort of faith in that idea. But that is, as I say, during the day, at night, all bets are off. And it, they really are off for me, because I legitimately, honestly, did see a ghost. I've seen a number of them. I saw both my kids before they were born. I felt a tactile interaction with one of the, those sort of apparitions of my children. They felt really real experience. They are real, real experiences for me. Um, and it was it's sort of like confusing. It, 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 and, and I never really knew what to do with it. So when I set out to be a cartoonist, I made a number of comics about these experiences. And people love them because everyone loves ghosts. We're all sort of scared of them, aren't we? But, um, you know, even if we don't believe in them. And I don't believe in them. So something else is happening. And... I, I, I ended up having a kid, and that focused my mind. It got me out of the pub and made me just apply for absolutely everything. Remember, I still want to be an artist, so I want to be an artist, great. I want to be a cartoonist, I want, but I want to use the sort of like ways of thinking that I'd learned when I was learning to be like a legit artist. So I started applying for anything and everything I could because I had to earn a living to feed my children. And um, one of the jobs that came up Science, medicine wasn't on my radar at this point. One of the jobs that came up was this, this job. It was working in a housing association with a bunch of uh, men who had uh, a history of serious violent crime and severe mental illness. And I was commissioned to produce an artwork which was in some way humanised them because the local population had um, they'd put up a massive petition against having this house, this house full of, literally full of people with diagnoses like psychopathy and various different mental, uh, various different personality disorders. Horrible term, but that, that was the term that they used there. Um, so I spent three months getting to know these guys. Now, it was, it's really intimidating going into a room with people who are, uh, you know, they're, they're historically violent. That's something that resonated from one of the talks yesterday, actually. That, um, uh, I went into the room with a bunch of literally bogeymen. At one point, I was sitting down watching the news, and there was this account of a, a hor horrible sort of murder. And I was thinking, I'm sitting with these guys, having coffee, dunking my tea, um, and they're at the other end of that story. You know, they're the other side of that story. Um, it, it was really weird. They were, some of them were really scary people, uh, intimidating individuals. But this was, this was like a sea change moment because this was the first time I met a whole bunch of scientists and could just ask them questions and talk to them. And they, they, they helped me see the people as uh, the, the men that I was working with as people. Yeah? So not like in the talk yesterday, not just the thing that they had done. And see beyond that and see their sort of humanity. Um, and so it helped me communicate that in this piece. There's loads of words, because this is Robert's account of his life. I never found out what Robert did, but he spent 25 years in jail, so I imagine it's quite serious. His account of his life is fascinating, uh, though, and uh, 
you can, you can read that on my, my website if you're interested. Okay, so I, I've met scientists, and I, I came home, and I was like to my wife, oh, I, I, I want to be a scientist. And she was like, hold on a minute, you wanted to be an artist, and now, now you want to be a cartoonist, you can't be a scientist. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a cartoonist who works with scientists. And I started like, actively looking for work like that. Um, and this, this was another very significant project um, that I will be returning to later on in the talk, and it, it's the beginning of the book that I ended up making. So Helix was commissioned, um, uh, I was commissioned along with David Blandy, visual artist, and Adam Rutherford, who's a, 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 a science, science broadcaster and geneticist, to, oh, there it goes, to um, produce a, a, an artwork, an interactive graphic novel, they called it. It was really just a cartoon um, that celebrated uh, the discovery of, the 60th anniversary of the discovery of DNA. Um, and uh, there's David, there's Adam, they're great guys. Adam is absolutely fascinating. And we, we, we did this. I, this, is, this slide is literally just here to show that I can draw the hind legs off a donkey. Um, <laughs> that's my show-off slide. Because most of my drawings are really stupid, but look at that shark. I mean... <laughs> okay, so... Thank you. Um, someone said you're a really nice audience. This is great for my ego. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so... Um, so that, that, that project was done and dusted, and it got received really well, and we were really into it, and it made it much easier for me to find other work. And I started, I've got little kids at this point. Climate change, it's a disaster, isn't it? So I started actively seeking out work that dealt with environmental issues, um, and I got to be involved in an organization called Rewilding Sussex, and we produced a number of projects. Um, this one was, uh, I was asked by Rewilding Sussex to produce a cartoon every day for 30 days, which is really, really difficult, about nature. Um, but I've included it here because this is one of the things I love about science, is it, it helps you see things from different perspectives. It encourages you to sort of look again and to look in more detail at the world around us. So I, in desperation, I was looking for a theme to my... Um, to, uh, to, 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 for, for the day's cartoon. And I was walking home across this expanse of concrete, and I saw this tiny little shield bug, really tiny, just all on its own in the, uh, on, on the concrete. And I just thought to myself, well, I'll just draw this shield bug. But as I was drawing it, I thought about how my perspective and his perspective are so radically different. For me, the, the, the pavement was about making the journey home easier. For him, it must have looked like this impassable desert. Um, and I, I felt really sorry for him. So, uh, okay, so, out of nothing. He Helix was commissioned, as I say, by the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust really, really liked it, and insanely, they came back to us, a bunch of chances as we are, and said, do you want to expand this narrative into a, into a, longer, a longer artwork? And uh, uh, David and I and Adam agreed, yes, yes, we do. If you're going to give us money, we'd love to. Um, so <laughs> so uh, in this debriefing meeting, David and I sat there, and the, the commissioner said, so what have you been thinking about? And independently, we were thinking, mm, uh, getting on with life, earning a living, you know. Uh, but looked, we looked at one another, and without sort of missing a beat, we just pitched a book, which at the time we called A Brief History of Knowledge, which is insanely hubristic. Um, and it was going to cover everything, like everything, which is just utterly, utterly ridiculous. So we quickly changed the title to Out of, Out of Nothing. Uh, Out of Nothing comes from that ex-Nilos, is it ex-Nilos, I think? It's that 
that the, uh, the word of God, you know. So often it seemed relevant for a graphic novel because although uh, the, you know, God is depicted as creating the, the, the universe from nothing, the, in place of the nothing, they put a word and it's an image. Images, cartoonists don't think very deeply about stuff. Images and words, cartoonists. So the, the book follows this blue character who changes her age and size as the narrative goes on. But we initially meet her in the space that our solar system would later occupy. Um, and she, she basically, I, I conceived her as the, the embodiment of our curiosity and, the, uh, and our intellect and the, the fact that our curiosity and our intellect allow us to travel through time. So we've reconstructed this image of how, why we're here, and it, we, you know, it starts right at the Big Bang. But for the purposes of, of this book, we, we decided to start it at the formation of the solar system. Um, and she floats around the solar system, and this picture we see her in the deep seas, uh, uh, surrounded by um, uh, you know, the, the chemistry that would give rise to single cellular life. Um, on the planet, and uh, then, then, you know, the, the, the through gut and the uh, predation and evolution and all its amazing wonder. Um, so the, the character moves through time, and it, within a couple of chapters, she's arrived at this, this fellow, who I think someone spoke about yesterday as well. So he's known as the Lion Man, and he was discovered, I think it was like 30,000 years. I'm probably going to put some massive factual clangers in this, this portion of the talk, because I'm, I'm not a scientist, so you know, just uh, forgive me if I do. But I think it was discovered about 30,000 years ago, um, and, uh, uh, and it's, this is sort of the first um, figurative artwork that we've got. And it's, it's not an insignificant um, object in terms of labor. So there was this practical archaeologist that, that, that carved it using tools of the time, and it, it took him hundreds of hours to scrape this mammoth bone. So that's hundreds of hours in a, within a hunter-gatherer set, setting. That's hundreds of hours away from gathering food or finding shelter or looking after your family. So whoever made this or the people that made this, you know, they felt it was really, really important. It's, it's a magical object, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's the embodiment. It's, it's a human body with a lion's head. So I guess it's something like trying to... A, a human trying to claim ownership over the power of that cave line. And those cave lines are fucking massive, bigger than African lines. And what, what was, what's cool about them, uh, what's, what's, in, what's relevant for our ancestors, is that they lived in the same space as we did. Uh, they, so so they, we were competing with them for ha the, uh, habitat. So, you know, you're going into the cave, you've got your kids, and you're, it's a nightmare-moving house anyway, isn't it? But <laughs> imagine if you had to move, move house into somewhere where there's a fuck-off, like Dungeons & Dragons-type monster living in the back. <laughs> so I'm not surprised they wanted to somehow own that thing. And what's mad is that they did, didn't they? Because quickly, uh, the, the, the cave line was part of the megafauna that occupied the whole world. You know, we still see them in Africa, these large mammals. But as soon as we left Africa, those large um, predators and other, other animals started dying out quickly. So more than likely, we're responsible for them. We either outcompeted them or hunted them 
So that cave lion, he didn't know it. He thought he was like, you know, cock of the walk. But as soon as that thing's made, his days are numbered. There's a new big boy in town. Um, so moving on still, uh, the, 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 our character comes to meet um, Picasso and Bracht. And this is where we get into the thesis of the book. So the cave line is a chimera, it's a collage of two different ideas. And the, the combination, the meeting of those ideas gives rise to something new and powerful. And we see this again and again. You know, this is, this is how we do what we do. We, nothing's original. It's just a case of taking one thing, adding another ingredient, and you've got, you know, you've got your favorite meal. So Picasso and Bracht um, collaborated and created this new potent way of depicting reality, cubism. Um, and here, here we see them walking in the, the gardens of, uh, outside uh, their studios in Paris. Um, I can't remember why I added all the flowers. I think it's just to have something really, really pretty. Because like, whilst they've got this serious project of, of depicting reality, uh, artists also like drawing pretty things. So it's the joy, the joy, the joy of, of, of just being alive there. One of the things I really like um, about talking to scientists and thinking about these big things, like I'm a cart comics guy, so you know, you've seen The Avengers, maybe you haven't, Iron Man, maybe you haven't, they're shit films, but they are epic, and they're epic because comics are epic. So I wanted to make this narrative which was sweeping and ridiculous and overblown. Um, and I, I think like the best story told is the one that science is building. Um, and it's the most epic story. Um, and in order to make the narrative work, I was looking for these moments that chime in sort of dis in human culture and discoveries, treating science as part of culture. And here we've got um, Einstein. And around the same time, it's not exactly the same, there's a lot of fudging that goes on in art, but around the same time as Picasso and Brax are reimagining a pictorial way of depicting reality and presenting us you know, as audiences, people with another way of seeing the world, this guy, along with like other really cool guys like Nils Bohr and stuff, are, are, are challenging the scientific dogma of the day, uh, whilst the, the sort of like conventional scientific um, uh, wisdom was that science is coming to an end, we understand everything, these young fellas were like going, no, whoa, whoa, what about quantum theory? What about the uh, theory of relativity? And, um, you know, they just exploded the whole thing. I, I wonder whether there's anything to do with, like, photography in all this, you know, coming from an art point of view. So, you know, being impressionism being a reaction to photography and um, leading to things like uh, um, uh, cubism. I wonder whether, whether the same thing's going on in science. I honestly don't know, but maybe it's an interesting question. So, okay, there's a, there's a, that, that was an instant of... of harmony in, in, this, in this story of, of knowledge and how we've built the, our picture of the universe. Um, but there's also, in order for it to be a really exciting drama, I was looking for moments of discord as well. And later on in the, in the story, I, I, I imagined an um, a exchange between Rosalind, Krauss, uh, Rosalind Franklin rather, and uh, Morris Wilkins, who were part of the team that uh, identified the structure of DNA. And Wilkins seems like a really interesting guy, putting aside the fact that uh, uh, Franklin has been 
shamefully, was shamefully sort of written out of the record and didn't receive the Nobel Prize and stuff. Um, Franklin seems like a really interesting... Uh, 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 Wilkins seems like a really interesting guy. He worked on the Manhattan Project, and it was that part, partly that work that he, he, he did there that, that enabled him to go on and, and, and do his work with DNA. So here I, see, I placed him with the famous photo 51, which is the first image of DNA that, you know, that, that was that eureka moment. I placed him against the atomic dome in Hiroshima, which is this other huge moment of science impacting the world in this very... Um, dramatic and tragic way. So, two minutes. Whoa. Okay, right. Here we've got so the D DNA opened everything up. And here we've got uh, DJ Cool Herc, the inventor of hip hop. Um, he's remixing DNA. You know, he's using uh, the, 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 the knowledge the DNA has given us to uh, unravel um, uh, the way that life and organisms. Um, uh, have special qualities, and he's remixing them. So we've got a goat plus a spider, gives us a spider goat. You know, have you, have you, has anyone heard? I've only got two minutes, so I'm rushing now. Has anyone heard about the spider goat? Yes or no? <laughs> no, oh, mixed, mixed. There's a, there, there, okay, there is a goat whose milk has the protein in it, which gives, uh, gives out the spider's web. How bizarre is that? And it, it's been produced by, uh, by a university in America uh, using this technology called synthetic biology. And, and, and this great Google synthetic biology. I've included this image here of Michael, um, I think it's Michael Collins, the pilot of the Apollo 11 uh, mission, because um, I really think he's a cool guy. You know, that moment that up there you can see the, the uh, eagle going down to the surface of the moon. Michael's in his um, capsule going round to the dark side of the moon. As he goes round to the dark side of the moon, surely the most alone human being that has ever existed, much more than, than um, uh, the guys in the eagle. And I just think there's something poetic about that. Okay, so at the moment I'm working on a book with um, Uta and Chris Frith at the University, Colle uh, University College London about how our brains have co-evolved. It's going to be out next year. It's going to be awesome. This is how I make... Um, Books. It's a nightmare. It's really messy. But making comics is like from the ground up. So that's the nothing in my talk, if you're curious about that. And this is who I share my studio with. <laughs> Thank you.